are opening up episode 115 of Monster Kid Radio with the song Funny Corn. It's from the band The Surf Coasters. It appears on their album Surf is Dead. You can find them over at surfcoasters.com. And it appears, with their permission, on this podcast, Monster Kid Radio. The podcast where we celebrate the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm your host, writer, producer, Derek M. Cook. I want to welcome you to this Tuesday's show. I'm still looking back at the time that I had at Monster Batch. It's been a few weeks now, and I know other conventions have come up. Blob Fest happened. A few other things have been going on. G-Fest happened, but I didn't get to go to any of those. I'm still hanging on to the memories of Monster Bash, and it's real easy because I still have recordings from Monster Bash to share with you guys and gals listening to Monster Kid Radio. This time around, this week, we've got interviews, and we are kicking off this week's interviews with... Joel Hodgson, the creator of Mystery Science Theater 3000. He was one of the guests at Monster Bash, and he was incredibly generous with his time and agreed to do a sit-down interview with us in a conference room away from everything, took some time to hang out with us for about half an hour or so, answered lots of questions, took some pictures, and had a really laid-back, relaxed time. When I say we, it wasn't just me. Joe Stuber, the host of the Comic Book Central podcast, was actually the guy who put this whole thing together. He's the one that reached out to Joel's people and made this happen. So Joe and I sat down with Joel. If you listened to last Friday's Comic Book Central, you got to hear some of that interview with Joel. You're going to hear the whole thing here on Monster Kid Radio. Big thanks again to Joe Stuber for making that happen. You can find his podcast over at comicbookcentral.net or just look him up on Facebook. The Comic Book Central podcast is where they are bringing comic books to life. We had a massive epic crossover with them last week, and I guess technically we are still crossing over with them this week as well. When you're done listening to the interview with Joel Hodgson, I'm going to ask you to head over to our website, monsterkidradio.net. That's where you're going to find everything that you need to know about the show. Anything that we mention on the show, you're going to find links to their websites in the show notes, including Joel's website, which is, wait for it, joelhodgson.com. You can also find links to our YouTube page, our Flickr album, and our Live 365 channel if you want to listen to music and sounds from classic monster and science fiction movies from the 30s to the 60s. you got to go to our Live 365 channel and listen to that. You can listen to that through your computer or your smartphone. We also have a Facebook page and a Facebook group. And if you want to get a hold of us, well, there's a contact button over at monsterkidradio.net that tells you our email address, which is monsterkidradio at gmail.com. And our voicemail line, which is 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. Oh, whoa, flashing lights. What's that mean? It means we have movie sign here on Monster Kid Radio. So we're going to get to that interview with Joel Hodgson right after this word from another one of my fellow podcasters by the name of Kyle Yount. He's launching an awesome Kickstarter campaign. He's going to tell you all about it right now. Attention, everyone. Hi, my name is Kyle Yount, and I love Godzilla so much that five years ago I actually started a podcast dedicated to the giant rubber-suited monster genre. And this genre is my passion, and I love sharing that passion with other Godzilla fans and other people all over the world through that podcast. This year marks the 60th anniversary of Godzilla, and ten years ago... 
for the 50th anniversary of Godzilla, here in Portland, Oregon, I put on a film festival where we showed a whole bunch of movies over a course of a week. Not only do I have a podcast about Godzilla, I wanted to do something else really cool for the 60th anniversary. In Japan, in Tokyo, from August 2nd to August 17th, there is an exhibit called Dai Gojira Tokusatsu Ten, which essentially means Big Godzilla Special Effects Exhibit. And in this exhibit, they're going to have lots and lots of stuff from the movies. They're going to have original suits, props, memorabilia. There's probably too many things for me to even list in this Kickstarter video. And of course, I want to go to this exhibit myself, but I really want to go so I can share this exhibit with everyone around the world that can't go. And so we came up with this really cool idea to film an independent documentary called Hail to the King, 60 Years of Destruction, which will essentially celebrate Godzilla's 60-year legacy in film history. We'll go to Japan, we'll interview people that I know that were in the movies and worked on the films, and hopefully I can get those guys to actually go to the exhibit with me. We'll bring all the footage back to America, cut it together into this independent documentary, and debut it on Godzilla's birthday, November 3rd, on YouTube. It'll be free for everybody to watch, but it cannot happen without your help, because I've lined up some really great camera guys, interpreters, and editors to help me bring this to life. So check out the perks we have on the right side of the page here. There's some really great stuff. You can get your name in the credits, access to daily vlogs filmed during the trip, Comic book artist Matt Frank and Jeff Zorno are both providing some original art specifically for this campaign, plus a whole bunch more. So please help us make this film and bring this awesome Godzilla event and celebration of Godzilla's 60-year history to you. Well, I am here at Monster Bash 2014, and I'm across the table from a man, you know, and I hope I don't make you uncomfortable by saying this, a legend, somebody that I watched on television oh, no, for a I'm long fine, time. Darren. <laughs> no, no, I'm talking about Mr. Joel Hodgson here. Yeah, thank you. Wow. I, I, I love hearing that. I really appreciate Would it. Would you like me to keep going? No, I, that's we're, all we're I need. That's all, all I need. I thought we were going to have a moment here. You're all about Joel. Fine. Well, and I also have Joe Stuber from Comic Book yeah, Central yeah. who yeah. actually set up this interview. So Joe, Joel, and Derek, we're going to wrap a little bit about Monster Bash. And, and on all things, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm ready. Movie sign. I mean, we have got movies. We do. Today. We have movie <laughs> sign. So originally a stand-up comic. Um, yeah, do yeah. You, are you still doing stand-up? No, no. I did stand-up. I started when I was in college and uh, did it for about three years. And uh, it was great, really fun. But I just kind of felt like I'd done all I could with it. And so I quit after about three years. And after that, about a year later is when I did Mystery Science Theater. So I went to LA. I did it for a year. My senior year is when I started doing it. After college, I went to LA for three years and then I quit and then came back to Minneapolis. And then within a year is when we started doing MST. What I find interesting too is tell the listeners what you're doing now. You just wrapped up Cinematic Titanic, which we love. We'll talk about Right, that. yeah. But what's your day job? Oh, you want to talk about Kinney? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. Kinney is a company that's in Pennsylvania. It has a unique novel propulsion system for satellites and also any kind of space vehicle. 
it's unique in that it doesn't use reaction mass. And every rocket and every projectile that's ever been shot since the dawn of time uses reaction mass, meaning you burn something, you burn kerosene or you burn gunpowder or whatever. This doesn't do that. Everyone's ideas about traveling to space aren't really practical if you have to burn fuel. You won't get anywhere meaningful. You just can't do it. Even going to Mars is really speculative that you could go to Mars burning reaction mass. So that's a huge problem if you want to go anywhere. But this engine doesn't do that. The company is called Kene. And you get, you're and working on satellites. Well, I'm not working on it. I just am, I'm the cr- I'm the creative lead for media. So I right. just do I work with the vendors who do the website and do the motion graphics and we I help the inventor kind of name the product line and stuff like that. That's it's all the frosting. No, it's the fr- <laughs> it's the frosting that's on top of it. So I don't really work on them. Like um you know on Wednesday I just was with uh, the guys that do the graphics, there's a really talented group called House Industries. We just met with them and the inventor, whose name is Guido Feta, and we we're just working on getting ready because there's a conference. I think it's in Cleveland, which is a, a propulsion conference. And actually, what's really cool is NASA is going to reveal, you know, that that they tested the engine and it worked in in, in laboratory, wow. per, you know, in laboratory conditions. And Guido has funded his own testing, but nobody really wants to buy that. You know, he's demonstrated that it works in the laboratory three years ago, but it wasn't until NASA decided to do it that it's kind of becoming vetted, becoming legitimized. I love that the science aspect of it has come full circle from Mr. I mean, you're starting off as... Yeah, I know. The the irony is not lost on me that I work for a satellite company now. Yeah. But but it's really cool. It's really cool. And... um, you're going to probably hear a lot more of it at the end of next month when NASA does it, announces its findings that that it's it's legit and it works. Good. Yeah, so and it's pretty cool. But I was totally confused. <laughs> I didn't know what you wanted me to talk about. But yeah. Well, well let's talk about other satellites. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we go from that. We're at that satellite now. But I mean, you're known for at least for the people who listen to our show up until this point. Satellite of Love. Yeah. Mystery Science Theater 3000. Yeah. Tom Servo, Crow T Robot. Where do you get these names? You know what? I got to tell you, I, uh, I love um, the book Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I thought he was especially apt at naming things. I always thought they were hilarious names, and I always try to create names. Like Douglas Adams, uh, I always thought he just was really great at that, really gifted at naming things. So I wanted to try to name things kind of like he did and reference uh, things in the culture. So servo was named was named after obviously a servo mechanism, or, or you know a thing that allows a robot to move. And then Josh Weinstein named him Tom Servo. The original Tom Servo, Josh Weinstein, said, "Oh, it's Tom Servo. <laughs> like he's a radio <laughs> DJ. Like the, in in quotation <laughs> marks, you'd see Tom." He's him and that was really when I think you know, in a way, that character was kind of finished was and it was probably like midway through the first our ktma episodes when he really figured it out and figured out his you know he's got swagger and he's a chick magnet and all that stuff yeah yeah, (laughs) dean martin of robots yeah that's right and then crow how would you describe crow then yeah where's that well crow i mean what what's funny is it's what, what became really clear is that the robots became the guys who were operating them josh really is servo josh when he was 17 
drank single malt scotch and smoked cigars and stuff like that. He really <laughs> is Tom Servo, and Trace really is Crow. So because you're riffing, you have to do all manner of voices and characters and dialects, and so you can't really have a character. It's really kind of you. And so Trace is Crow, like he's um, sarcastic half the time, but he's also childlike. You know, he's at, like Crow is more childlike than Servo is. Servo's more like adolescent, like just figuring out that he likes girls. Crow doesn't. He's the Jerry Lewis. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's more naive. Yeah, he's a he's more of an innocent, but he can. He can, Does this make you Frank Sinatra? He can vacillate. No, I'm Joey Bishop. <laughs> oh, okay, I'm okay, Yeah, okay, I'm Joey okay, Bishop, right. actually. <laughs> I'm Peter Lawford. I get pushed out of the Rat Pack. <laughs> What's the process of getting these films then when you're, when you're kind of going through those initial – I'm sure it got easier as the seasons progressed. But what was the process of getting these movies, the selection of these movies, and then just kind of getting a script? out of this and not just making it up as you go well it, it evolved over time and you know the really early version of mystery science theater is really like pictures you know it's like the idea that but when i pitched uh, mystery science theater to jim mallon i had like three pages of pictures and the first picture was the guy on the set with the two robots and there was a drawing that this set split and behind the set were little more sets that would break apart. Mm -hmm. And so that was me indicating that, oh, well, this is the main set, but then you go down the doorway to the theater. So that seemed really important to me, like that you have to travel to the movie. I, when I was a kid, I always hated the idea that an announcer would be talking, and then all of a sudden the movie starts. Like, how does that happen? Like, what's happening? No one... You know, no one really explains to you why you're suddenly watching a movie. So I didn't want to be, I wanted to be a little more formal with where the movie was in relationship to where the host was. So I really wanted you to travel to it. So the other drawing was the doorway. And then the other drawing was the silhouettes, you know, and the, the little theater seats and the little characters. So those, if you look at those three pictures, that's really mystery science theater in a nutshell. And so that's what I pitched, and the idea was really that, oh, you'd be watching movies with companions, you know, they would be watching and saying stuff. But the big difference from when we started, let's just use uh, KTMA as an example, when we started, it wasn't clear how much we would riff. Like in the pilot, it, there wasn't a big emphasis on the movie riffing because we wanted to demonstrate how do you string a narrative together we just had a little bit of the theater segment and there's just a couple of riffs there's just a like two riffs that kind of say oh they'll say stuff then but that wasn't as developed and i think that really came over the course of the ktma episodes by the time we were done it was clear oh you you talk the entire time you know what I mean? But that wasn't like where I started at all. I didn't think people could manage that. I didn't think you could watch a movie and run a narrative or a running commentary the entire time. That was really that was really clear by the end of the KTMA episodes that that's what we had to do. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, even now they give directors commentary. So like people are so used to just people watching a movie, hearing something. Yeah. 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 So, it was like the new. Yeah. Pitch. It was the new. It was so new, and I was always thinking, how much can people multitask? Like, how much can people manage? And so if you look, we amped up very slowly. And then even the first season where we got paid to do it for Comedy Channel, 
we did like 300 riffs a, a movie, but then the second season it was up to six or 700 riffs. So we just kept getting better, and then it kind of leveled off between 600 and 800 riffs. Like, where do all the references come from? Like, how do you get that many jokes? Uh, and they're they're actually all solid. <laughs> well, you know what it is? I'll tell you. It's it's because we didn't have a lot of pressure. There's no emphasis. There was no executive saying all these jokes have to be spectacular. Because once you have someone, anyone saying that, it'll wreck everything. If anybody in the writing room ever said that's not funny enough, the whole thing would crumble. And so one of the things I set up, I had read a lot of creativity books. I was really like fascinated with it. And one of the things I knew we couldn't do is evaluate the material in the room. The writing room was just for creating as many riffs as we could think of. And if that's your job, they don't all have to be funny. There's just something that really is incredibly inhibiting when you're trying to generate ideas is is evaluation. And so that was, I think that's the secret of how we did it, is later each segment producer, which would be Mike, Frank, Mary Jo, Paul Chaplin, would go through and each take a segment. And they were the ones who said, oh, this is the funniest moment. This is the funniest joke. This is the best joke. And they would kind of seam it together. Now, sometimes there'd be sections where there wasn't a riff and then they'd write something or they'd you know, ask somebody and say, we need a riff here. But but that's kind of how it worked. But I think it just was like one of these things where we would riff. We'd basically start at like 10 in the morning and get done by 4 in the afternoon. It was like we weren't staying there late into the night, like going, MST's just not funny enough. Let's keep at You know, it just <laughs> it wasn't like that, you know. And also there was nothing to compare it to. So we just had a lot of liberty to try to fill it with what we thought was funny and it worked you know so as far as the riffing goes what would you say to critics who say that the riffs are actually disrespectful to the films or worse yet encourage other people to maybe disrespect the films with their own riffs i mean do you think there's mm. some truth to that or do you oh, think that's just a, way off base no that's a really good question um i don't know i mean it was really hard when we started because it, there was no such thing, you know what I mean? And so we had to, like, actually, you couldn't pitch Mystery Science Theater. You had to make it first, you know, because it's just too complex. And I'm terrible at pitching anyway, so I don't think I could have been the guy to do that. But even now it's hard to explain to people. You really got to show it to people. And even if I'm on a plane and someone goes, well, what do you do? And I go, well, I never presume they know about it. I just go, here, let me draw you a picture. I, I draw them the silhouettes and the characters and the movie. And then I go, does this look familiar to you? If you've seen this, that's what I do. But getting back to your question, I think that the reason I did Mystery Science Theater was that it was really obvious. People talk during movies. And so I, I just thought it was a really obvious idea that was waiting to happen. And I was kind of shocked no one else had done it. And mostly because back then it was so hard to do, the idea of managing all the riffs, the idea of getting the rights to a movie. Like when I started, I thought it would be, we can only use public domain movies. We can only use movies that aren't owned by anyone. And that's what I came to Jim Mallon with. Like, this is all public domain movies. And he said, well... Maybe we can license them. People might let us use them. You know, it may not be that bad. As far as disrespecting them, fortunately, we just kind of walked that line where 
we were the kind of people where we didn't go that dark and we were pretty respectful. I think just because part of it is because there's puppets. So it's kind of like suggested that its families can watch it. And so we never went that bad. And I also think that it's not sustainable if you're an asshole. You know what I mean? Like people will laugh, but at a certain point they won't want to spend time with you. So you have to kind of have this kind of equilibrium where you're fair, you know, at a certain point. Well, you've actually had people that were in the movies, the stars of the movies come to you after and like praise you for like they were some people yeah i mean our charles our charles jr's here today and i'm gonna meet him for the first time so i'll get to talk to him and find out what you know his side of it what he thought of it and all and like miles o'keefe was it miles o'keefe yeah miles o'keefe was the first guy to get in touch with us and he was really sweet and i think ultimately actors know more than anyone that it was just like five days out of their life or three days out of their life. They're not the ones amplifying it and making you feel like, be amazed at this movie, you know, be intimidated at the vastness of the movie. You know, that that was kind of like something that producers and the movie business would put on you. But actors aren't really like that. They're just more humble, I think, and they know the reality of it. They're people, you know, so they always seem to have a, a great attitude about it. I met Robbie Benson, who was in one of our movies, City Limits. He's super sweet about it and just had a great sense of humor about it. So most of the people I met are all re- have, and even Arch Hall, I, I've been corresponding with them. And I just said, man, I got to tell you, like, Ega is like one of our biggest movies. And he goes, what's not to love? <laughs> you know, a caveman and a kid with a guitar, you know. So so even he knew it was like a, a pr- preposterous, crazy movie. Yeah, It's been well documented that it- I think it was during the fifth season that you left. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were creative differences. It's been well documented. Wait a minute, creative differences? Is that what you're calling it? I thought I had what, read that you. What, that what would were, you call it? <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't call it creative differences. What I would say was it was a power struggle. Okay. Exactly. I left the show. What exactly. Kind of wondering was where does it stand now in 2014? Do you own any part of Mystery Science Theater? Because you came up with it. You created it. That's logical, that a person would create something and they would own it. But how many people do you know that created shows that own them? Fair enough. None, right? (laughs) Well, the public Uh, domain films, for example, they create those movies and they don't own them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so that doesn't really happen. People who create shows rarely own them. They're usually owned by the production company or they're owned by the people who pay for them to be made. But did you have any control in what happens to it now or whether it can come back? Do you have any? No, no. I have, what I do is I get a royalty from the show. So my arrangement was pretty much based on my agreement with Jim Mallon right from the start. So I get a royalty on whatever comes from Mystery Science Theater. Jim Mallon, he's considered the mark holder. So if anything happens with that, he would have to allow that to happen. Is it ownership? I don't know. I get a royalty. In Wired Magazine, you indicated that you would like to see it come back. How do you feel about it now? And what are the odds of that happening, even on Netflix? Well, I think that it's, I I really want that to happen. I think there's a lot of people that want that to happen. And I think it has a good chance of happening. I can't speak very directly about it because it's still in the process of, we're in the process of making that deal. So I can't say for sure. Would this be an amalgam of the Mike and Joel years, for lack of a better? Do you mean with the cast? Yeah. 
Um, well, you guys are all still doing this. You're doing cinematic Titanic, which rap. Mike and his guys are doing riff tracks, which has become hugely popular. Yeah. Um, you guys are still making fun of movies. I guess so, but we're all in our 50s now. What I would like to do is just refresh it with new people that were kind of the age we were when we started. Mm. So it's kind of like finding really good comics to be on camera, really good writers. But also, I mean, it would be a mistake not to use the original people to produce and direct and write and consult on it. Do you know what I mean? Have some continuity. So, yeah, it'd be because, like you said, everybody's still active and movie riffing, and there's so much experience and, like, kind of knowledge. I mean, even now, doing six years of cinematic Titanic, I learned so much more than I did you know, then I, I mean, I just got better at it than I did when I was doing the show. So there's a lot of great kind of like experience there that I would, it would be a mistake not to take advantage of, but it's not a reunion show. I don't think would, I mean, it's possible in success we'd get to do one, but I, that's not what would be my first move. My first move would be rejigger it. So it's fresh. You're here at Monster Bash. Yeah. And you're performing your one man show, which is? Riffing myself. It's a truncated version because they only had an hour. It's ninety minute show. It's usually a two hour show when I do it. So it's a highlighted high, the highlights of uh, riffing myself. It's basically the creation story of Mystery Science Theater. So it's like all the different things that kind of dropped into place for me to kind of go. Oh yeah, this should be this would be a good show. It shows the origin of the why the robots, why robot puppets, why their names. Uh, the ideas of well, how did I get to it. I talked about that a little bit in the um, Q&A earlier today, just like certain moments that said, oh, that would be really fun if there was a TV show that featured bad movies. And that would be really fun if there were silhouettes of these characters that kind of talked through the movie, you know, think those kind of gestalt moments of figuring it out. Before we let you go, one of the things that we do on Monster Kid Radio is play a quick game called the Classic Five. Sure. Got a deck of cards here. Yeah. Questions, yes or no, rapid fire. Sure, I'm ready. No, Okay, and they're all about classic monster sure. movies. Sure, go ahead. First question. What classic monster movie would you like to see turned into a theme park attraction? Uh, the Fly. Okay, next question. What Boris Karloff role should Bella Lugosi have played? Um, uh, go ahead. Next one. <laughs> Edward Van Sloan as Van Helsing, Dr. Waldman, or Dr. Mueller? Van Helsing. Okay. Next question. Christopher Lee or Peter Cushing? Christopher Lee. And finally... What one black and white monster movie would you like to see colorized? What was the one with uh, Robbie the Robot and the Little Boy? Remember that uh, one? Was that The Invisible Boy? The Invisible Boy. Yeah. I think that would be cool. Or Colossus of New York. Oh, all right. Thanks, you guys. It was yeah, so much looking. fun. I appreciate it. And thanks for working with my schedule. Huge thanks to Joel Hodgson, Joe Stuber, and Monster Bash, of course, for their parts in making this interview happen. It was a great time. Joel was a super cool, laid-back guest, was more than happy to answer our questions, and, you know, it just couldn't have happened without Joe Stuber's help. So thank you very much. I want to thank you, boys and girls, for listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Now, this is going out on Tuesday the 15th. In two days is episode 116. You're going to get another interview that Joel and I conducted at Monster Bash. This time, we're going to be talking to Beverly Washburn. So we're going to be playing that in the next episode of 
Monster Kid Radio. I want to thank everybody who's liked us on Facebook and everybody who's given us an honest review in the iTunes store. If you are an iTunes user, remember, we've got our 50 review challenge. We're looking to get 50 reviews in the iTunes store. And if that happens, you know what we're going to do? We're going to launch a spinoff podcast here on Monster Kid Radio devoted to nothing but Creature from the Black Lagoon. We're going to launch that show once we get 50 reviews in the iTunes store. So if you haven't reviewed us yet, we're going to ask you to give us an honest review over there. And I can tell you, I've got an interview with Julie Adams that I will play in the first episode of the Creature from the Black Lagoon spinoff show. So if you want to hear that and you're an iTunes user, well, you know what to do. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Funny Corn. That belongs to the Surf Coasters. It appears on their album Surf is Dead. Learn more about them over at surfcoasters.com. They appeared on this episode of Monster Kid Radio. With their permission, talk to everybody next time. <laughs>